Do you feel a shiver up your spine from fear? Yes, it's another story from the Nightshade Diary. You know what that means. Check under the bed and make sure no one or nothing is there. Is the closet door securely shut? Then leave your disbelief behind. Amp up your imagination and hang on tight for another ride into terror and mystery. And like all good horror stories, just imagine it's a dark and stormy night. And remember, screaming like a little girl is permitted. The Hauntings at Ash Manor, Ash Green near Guildford by Maud M.C. Folks. The facts are contributed by the owner of Ash Manor, Maurice Kelly Esquire, and corroborated by the statement of Mr. F.C. Miller, what occurred during his employment there in December 1935. The story of Dr. Nandor Fodor and Maud Folks, vigil at Ash on the night of July 19, 1936, when the latter saw the ghost at 4.30 a.m. near the Oast House is exactly in every detail. The photographs of the haunted landing and of Mr. F.C. Miller are especially interesting in view of Mr. Miller's evidence. The photograph of Mr. Miller was taken standing on the trunk of a tree bridging part of an old quarry in the country, haunted by the ghost of two men who fought on this precarious footing and fell into the quarry below where their skeletons were recently discovered. I first had the pleasure of meeting Mr. Maurice Kelly in March 1936, and our acquaintance began on business lines when I went to the wonderful offices in the Strand associated with the multiple interests of the well-known firm of which he is a member. One thing usually leads up to another, and after I had told Mr. Kelly I was collaborating with the Marchioness Townsend in a volume of True Ghost Stories, he smiled and said, do you really believe in ghosts? Absolutely. I don't think one can doubt their existence. Well then, it may interest you to know, I live in a haunted house, and until I saw what occurs there for myself, I should never have imagined that I could possibly believe in the supernatural. You'd never guess from my appearance, profession, or environment that I had really seen a ghost. As Mr. Kelly sat facing me in his private office, he represented the best type of the intellectual businessman. Indeed, he might easily have passed for an Oxford don. He also gave me the impression of weighing his words well before speaking. But, as a refined, clever face was that of a thinker whose brain reasoned and did not dream, I was convinced he had spoken the truth when he said that he had seen a ghost and lived in a haunted house. When Mr. Kelly bought the property in 1934, the owner did not give him the slightest hint that anything unusual existed. Although each time he inspected the house, he commented on the fact that the large bedroom at the extreme left of the manor was always kept locked. However, he accepted the explanation that servants had previously slept there, and after they left, the unoccupied room had become a dump for unwanted furniture. Mr. Kelly fell for the lovely place with its wealth of old oak and its historical association as a fortified monastery built, so it is supposed, on the site of a druidical temple. After the completion of the sale, he heard rumors that it would be difficult to get servants to come to or to stop at the manor, but this was a foregone conclusion as it lies well away from dance halls, cinemas, and shops. So hoping that he and his wife would eventually meet with contented working domesticity, the Kellys came to live at Ash Manor in June 1934. 
No wonder that this tired my imagination, although I listened to the story in the most prosaic surroundings. The roaring sea of London life surrounded me, but the quiet voice of the speaker harmonized so well with his grave face and his simple directness over facts, which would have been easy to exaggerate or to embroider, convinced me of his good faith. I also heard how two professed ghost layers had come to ash, and how the hauntings had increased and not decreased after their visit. Then Mr. Kelly said, The best thing will be for you to spend a weekend with us, and sample the supernatural for yourself. In the meantime, I will send you a photograph, taken at midnight on the haunted landing, my own ghost story of what I have seen at Ash, and the deposition of the ghost layers. Our interesting interview happened in March, but a series of unexpected worries prevented my going to Ash. At the end of June, Mr. Kelly sent me his statement, with that of the ghost layers, and invited me and Dr. Nandor Fodor to an all-night sitting at the end of July. Here is Mr. Kelly's own story. Ash Manor House, Ash Green, Surrey. The Manor House of Ash dates back to A.D. 1279. I first came to live there on June 28, 1934. At that time, I was not aware that there was any possibility of its being haunted, nor had any such thing ever occurred to me. Nothing unusual occurred until early in November of that year, when there were quite unaccountable noises of tramping footsteps in the roof overhead, but we did not take much notice of that. On the night of November 18th, a Sunday, I was suddenly awakened by three violent bangs on my door. I am a very heavy sleeper, and not easily awakened. I thought that it was probably my wife who sleeps at the other end of the house. So I got up and walked down to her room. There was nothing to be seen and I wasn't even thinking of a ghost at that time. But my wife assured me that she had never even stirred from her bed, far less knocked at my door. I didn't think any more of it, and went back to bed. Nothing more happened. The next night exactly the same thing happened, except there were two knocks instead of three. Again I saw nothing, and my wife assured me that she had not knocked. The next night, Tuesday, it happened again, but with one knock instead of two. Again. I went along to my wife's room, and she assured me that she had never moved. Laughingly, I said to her, Well, if it is a ghost, he is going to be unlucky tomorrow night, for I shall be away. I was away the following night, and until the Sunday, November 25th. On that night, I went to bed as usual, but I felt somehow that all was not well. The room was unnaturally cold, and there was something unpleasant about it. I decided, therefore, to remain awake and see what I could see. I stayed awake until 3 a.m., and nothing happened at all. So I went to sleep. I should mention here that I left my bedroom door open on this occasion. A short while after, I now know to be at 3.35, I was awakened by a violent banging on the door. I sat up in bed and saw standing in the door the figure of a little oldish man dressed in a green smock, very muddy breeches and gaiters, and a slouch hat on his head with a handkerchief round his neck. He was not in the least transparent or ghost-like, but appeared to be solid flesh and blood. That being so, it never occurred to me that he was a ghost, but I thought that a servant had carelessly left the door open, and a tramp had walked in. I asked him who he was and what he was doing there. There was no reply. Then I got out of bed and went for him, and ran right through him as I went to catch hold of his shoulders. After that, I think I fainted, for I do not remember much more. But I eventually reached my wife's bedroom. I did not tell her what I had seen. I was too upset, but she saw that something had happened, 
and went back along the passage to get some brandy for me. When she arrived outside my bedroom door, she also saw him standing there. She too thought he was a real man, either a tramp or someone playing a practical joke, and she hit at him with her clenched fist. The only result was that her fist went right through him and she barked it against the wall. I had not yet told her what I had seen, and the next morning she described to me what she had seen and it exactly coincided. I should perhaps have added that when she got close up to him, it was possible to see that his throat was cut from ear to ear. Since then, he has been seen in or near the same place on various occasions by different people, but he never attempts to make any movement or to do any harm. It sounds, I know, an extraordinary and unlikely story, but those are the facts to which I and others can testify. On the advice of a member of the Council of the Society of Psychical Research, I had down two men who claimed to be able to lay ghosts, attach a copy of their report on the subject, but would say that I do not place any faith in it, nor do I accept it all. Partly because, though I have searched every available record, I cannot trace any one of the name mentioned, and also because they claimed, and still claim, that they have disposed of the matter, which is quite untrue, as it is still seen at intervals, and has been seen as recently as within the last fortnight. Maurice Kelly June 26, 1936 I wonder whether the deposition of the gentleman who tried to lay the ghost was written during a trance condition. According to Mr. Kelly, no record exists in the locality of any persons by the name of Henry Knowles or Rose Cross, and if such a murder had taken place, it would surely have been remembered in the countryside and handed down from father to son to successive generations, much in the same way that the murder of the sailor on the Devil's Punch Bowl has become a tradition of the Portsmouth Road. Here is a deposition of the ghost layers. The man's name is Henry Knowles. In this room, Miss Kelly's slept a girl in the year 1819. She was a milkmaid, an itinerant cobbler and mender of harness. Henry Knowles paid visits each three months to the farms in the district, staying between two, three, and ten days according to the amount of work he found to do. Here he fell in love with the milkmaid. She promised herself to Knowles. At his next visit, after the promise, the girl told him that she had not cared for him, but that she had just amused herself. She, in the time that had elapsed, having herself fallen in love with a gardener who had but lately come to this place. Knowles left, and that night slept in a common lodging house at Guilford. There, after drinking a deal, he went to bed cursing the girl, Rose Cross, and ear sleeping thoughts of murder were in his heart. Twixt thoughts of murder and the drink, he took his cobbler's knife and did end his incarnation by stabbing himself in the throat. Being almost out of his body at the time, quickly did he leave his body and took the thoughts of vengeance with him. He comes to the house each three months, always with the idea of wreaking his vengeance on Rose Cross. When seen, which betimes he has been, it would be noted that he were listening to make sure that they who slept in the other rooms were asleep. He always came in at the back entrance, which was indicated by Mr. N. One morning last July, Mr. Kelly rang me up and asked me if I cared to come to Ash with Dr. Fodor on July 23rd. Did I care? I certainly did, and I knew I could count on Dr. Fodor. But 
remembering Mrs. Kelly's recent bad health, I insisted there should be no fuss, no preparing a bedroom for me to rest in next morning. I just bring a small attache case with first aids to face repairs necessary after a sleepless night. I'd change and rub when I got back to town. Sunday, July 23rd, must have been to misquote Tennyson, the rainiest Sunday in all the rainiest year. Dr. Fordor wished to reach Ash as late as possible in order, so he said, not to fill in the afternoon with small talk, inimical to the supernatural. At six o'clock, when I retrieved Dr. Fodor at his flat, it was raining heaven's heart, but we stowed him away in the car with various cameras and suitcases, more or less comfortably, and started out on another, for me, great adventure. As yet, I had never had such an experience, but the old friend, through whose kindness Dr. Fodor and I were able to do the journey by car, was not at all surprised when I told him my destination was a haunted house. After going with me and Algernon Blackwood in the dead of night to wait for the eclipse of the sun in the heights above Clithrow, and meeting Pan and Rout, nothing surprised him. He assumed that people who wrote books were odd, and left it at that. It still continued to rain. In places the road looked like the swimming pools, which are advertised so largely out of London. Cars couched aerial-like under the trees, and motorcyclists sought sanctuary beneath tarpaulins. Roadhouses and childishly Christian cafes were anything but inviting or gay. I wondered whether the serried lines of ideal homes were as damp as they looked, and sad to confess it, I sighed for the unspoiled country of yesteryear. At Guildford, the rain ceased, and the long glistening road streaked upward like a wet snake. As we ascended, fields and woods gradually spread themselves like a green map below us. In places, rising earth mist met the mists of twilight. The breath of the rain was everywhere. Presently, we turned down a narrow side road, apparently going downhill all the way, occasionally meeting little groups returning from evening service. But when we inquired our way from some of the church returns, we were told that they hadn't any notion of the whereabouts of the manor. Others somewhat unduly emphasized their ignorance. It is curious that country people who usually know all there is to know about their other people's private lives are never able to tell you where they live. All unknowingly, we were only five minutes distant from the manor, and we found out from a solitary hiker that if we turned in through a white gate lower down, we should find ourselves at the manor. A drive led through pasture meadows, and we came upon the ancient house looking, in a semi-twilight, something like a crouching animal. We glimpsed a moat, while a large oust house of mellow rose brick lay on our right, separated from the garden by a low wall. Outside the entrance, we were welcomed by Mr. Kelly, who took us into what was once the monk's refectory, now a lounge. A fire of logs burned on an open hearth, and a pretty fair-haired girl introduced herself as Patricia Kelly. Behind her was Mrs. Kelly, the loveliest woman I have ever seen. More than usually tall, her small head, with its blue-black hair framed and oval face as creamy as a magnolia petal, and her unrelieved black gown served as a somber sheath for the weapon of her beauty. Her only touch of color was a little coronel of jade. She was the last person one would have dreamed of finding in this hidden place, tenanted by the strange terror that walked in darkness. One instinctively associated her with southern skies in a vie momenti. Mrs. Kelly is a niece of Maximilian Hardin. Her intelligence equals her beauty. There was no question of strangeness. You felt you had known her mentally all your life. At times she was reminiscent of Melusine, at others her personality missed centuries, and she stood for what Josephine 
Beauharnais must have been in the heyday of her charm. I left Dr. Fodor and Mr. and Mrs. Kelly talking over the best places for the special flashlight cameras, while Patricia Kelly and I went into the gardens, before it gets too dark to see the water lilies, and Patricia explained that in one place where the ground rose slightly, a drawbridge had formerly existed, and at some other time or other one side of the moat had been filled in, but sufficient water remained, she said, to make punting pleasant, and I was introduced to the cluster of water lilies waiting to open and greet the night. There are numbers of goldfish in the moat. Father had it stocked of them, and in the daytime they looked just like flecks of moving gold. I stopped outside the oast house. There was something unusual about it. Something watchful. People might easily have met here and planned things. But what? I hastily retreated from the company of my subconscious self. I mustn't become fanciful. As we went into supper, Mr. Kelly whispered, Remember, not a word about ghosts before the staff. They think you are film people, who have come to get some close-ups of an old English manor house by night. A little later business began in earnest. We first went upstairs and explored the opening passages in places so low that your head touched the ceiling, and where unexpected steps made pitfalls for unwary feet. I saw doors opening with ancient bobbin latches, and a staircase which features in most books on historical houses in that part of England. Last but not least, we wondered at the construction of the immense chimney almost as big as a house, part of which is built outside and part inside, the room where Mr. Kelly first saw the ghost. This room has atmosphere, the heavy atmosphere of a secret. Dr. Fodor suggested the chimney might provide the key to the hauntings, as the man with his throat cut usually appeared here. He advised holding a seance. There was also a large open cupboard, with the darkness closed on you like a trap. This is the room which was always locked when I first saw over the house, said Mr. Kelly. It was a well-worthwhile experience, even from the artistic aspect, as the passages and rooms were full of strange moving shadows, possibly our own, but how easy it was to believe them otherwise. Dr. Fodor arranged to take a flashlight photograph every half hour after midnight, and we went downstairs to discuss the hauntings. Mr. and Mrs. Kelly were firm in their belief that the ghost existed. Both of them had seen it, not once, but often. And Mrs. Kelly said how much she wished that it would leave them in peaceful possession of their home. She went on to describe the heavy footsteps which came from a now floorless room at the top of the house, a room where in ancient days the manor servants had slept on bundles of straw. Only last week, she said, I was lying awake reading in bed when our dog Ross, who was asleep in the room, woke up, looked at the door, and began to growl and whine. The door opened, and I heard footsteps thumping across to the far corner when they went upwards, and I distinctly heard them overhead. I couldn't make this out. There wasn't the vestige of a stairway in that particular corner. But next morning I sent for a builder whose father and grandfather had worked at the manor, and he told me that a ladder way had once existed in my room, but it had been removed some years previously, and the trap-door in the ceiling to which it gave access closed. This has only happened once, continued Mrs. Kelly, but the other evening, as I was coming down the passage, I suddenly felt confronted with the invisible presence of such concentrated evil that I fell on my knees and prayed to be delivered from it. Do your children know anything about the hauntings? asked Dr. Fodor. It's impossible to prevent it, said Mrs. Kelly. 
Patricia hears the noises and knows that something uncanny exists, but Michael, who is at Winchester, is away from home so much that he doesn't suspect anything. It is very difficult to keep servants, as they hear all sorts of stories in the village. Those we have now have only been here a week. Perhaps they'll give notice tomorrow. They've already complained of the noises. After Patricia went to bed, our host and hostess suggested making black coffee, and Dr. Fodor and I were left alone. It was then that we heard a succession of heavy thuds overhead which had no connection with Miss Kelly's bedroom or the kitchen end of the house. We told Mr. Kelly, at any rate, he said, you've heard a little of what often goes on for nights on end. But what are you going to do? I'm off to bed. The 8.23 a.m. train to town won't wait for me. But perhaps Dr. Fodor would like to take a little rest. The haunted bedroom is at his disposal, and there's a choice of bedrooms for you. I'm going to sit down here, I said. I told you I intended to see this through. Anyway, I'm going back to town at seven o'clock. You don't mean to stop by yourself, exclaimed Mr. Kelly. Why ever not? I'm not frightened. I shall stay with her for a couple of hours, said Mrs. Kelly. I never sleep. Besides, I want to talk to Mrs. Folks. Dr. Fodor, who decided to return to town by train, and Mr. Kelly bade us good night. And Mrs. Kelly and I sat in the now dimly lit room and talked as people do who meet uncongenial ground and who know and appreciate the color of life, the allure of the unusual, the hatred of the cage which existence so often represents, who have a mutual appreciation of books, the dislike of remaining in the rut, and who possess the thousand and one things which contribute to create the often fatal to happiness artistic temperament. At three o'clock I insisted upon my delightful new friend going to bed. I'm perfectly happy, I said. It will soon be morning. Left alone, I must confess to a momentary feeling of nervousness. The divan on which I was sitting faced two dark passages at the other end of the long room. At any instant, it might come down one of them. Well, let it come, I said to myself. It doesn't want to hurt anyone. But nothing appeared. I made up the fire, listened for strange sounds, and read. Presently, the dawn drew near. The house was as silent as the grave, but I waited another half hour before drawing the curtains aside. I wanted to see the garden and breathe the fine air of morning. I looked at my watch. It was exactly half past four. I opened the window and leaned out. I was almost on a level with a bed of sleeping flowers, reading faint sighs of perfume. The turf glistened with the tears of the night, and the row of tall orange lilies growing by the low wall seemed like flower sentinels on duty to protect the night. I was looking directly across at the Oast house, still as secretive as it had been in the evening, normal, but secretive. Suddenly I was aware that a man was standing by the door. I could not see his face, but I paid no particular attention to him, as I supposed it was someone employed on a nearby farm, waiting for one of his mates. I watched the man walk round to the back of the Oast house, and I did not see him again. But, as it will be seen from Mr. Miller's statement, I had actually and all unknowingly seen the ghost. At seven o'clock my friend appeared with his car and took me back to London, laden with all kinds of interesting memories and the promise of better acquaintance in the future with a haunted manor house. On Tuesday morning I received a packet from Mr. Kelly, delivered by hand. This contained the negative of the photograph taken by Mr. Miller when he was employed at Ash Manor last January, with a detailed account of his experiences there. As a reliable and independent witness, 
it is impossible to doubt the truth of what he saw and heard, and I reproduced the statement exactly as I received it. When I came to the part in which he describes his meeting with the ghost outside the Oast House, I knew that I must have seen the same thing, so that although I missed the fear and thrill of an encounter with the supernatural, I had the consolation of knowing I had sat up to some good purpose, and that my subconscious feeling about the Oast House was fully justified. 4 Halliford Road, Sunbury on Thames, Middlesex, July 19, 1936, to Maud Folks. Dear Madam, I trust you will find sufficient information and notes, etc., to help you in your own investigation. I have given you the whole story as it occurred to me. Therefore, you are entitled to use it as you wish. With regard to the negative, there are stains on it due to deteriorations and dampness, but the actual image is still in good pres preservation. Yours respectfully, F.C. Miller. 4 Halliford Road, Sunbury on Thames, Middlesex. July 19, 1936. To Maud Folks, dear madam, I am pleased to say I am now in a position to give you a full and detailed account of my experiences in connection with the Ash Manor House ghost, and it is as follows. In December of last year, 1935, it was the wish of Mr. and Mrs. Kelly for my wife to go down there and give a little assistance for the Christmas, she having been in their service during the time they lived in Sunbury. Circumstances were so complicated with us that one could not go without the other, so the arrangements were made for us both to go. On the 22nd of December we were driven down in Mr. Kelly's car. I may say that park work while I was doing was attending to fires, lamps, and getting in wood, also attending to ducks out in the grounds. My first experience was on the second night after we arrived. As I went out to the Oast house, I saw a person standing in the doorway. I turned my head and looked across the kitchen garden, but when I turned my head again in the direction I was going, he had gone. I did not see him inside, but I naturally thought that he had gone out through another door, and that he was probably a man employed by Mr. Kelly for the garden, but I learned afterward that there was no gardener. The next experience was, I think, a few nights after Christmas, and all were away in London except for my wife, a child, the dog Ross, and myself. About eleven o'clock in the evening, Ross was asleep in the lounge near the fire. I was helping the wife in the kitchen. Suddenly, Ross started barking viciously and tore out of the lounge door and up the drive. Thinking that someone was trying to make an entry, I at once followed, taking one of Mr. Kelly's guns for protection in case of trouble. I reached the garage and the dog turned and went back into the house as if scared. I at once stood still and listened in the darkness. Hearing nothing, I turned to go back to the house, when to my surprise a man stood quite ten feet away, slightly bent forward as if creeping towards me with a terrible determined look and with eyes that I shall not forget in a hurry. I brought my gun to the ready and challenged him, at the same time watching for a hand to move with a weapon in it, but not a word did I get, neither did he move. I again challenged him, this time saying, if you don't speak, I'll empty this magazine into your body. Again no answer. I thought of my wife and the child in the house. Then I remembered I had seen this man before. I had also a feeling of great responsibility, and in any case I had to come out of this alive. So I fired, but immediately I did so a bluish light seemed to burst in front of me. This may have been imagination, through fear and suspense. However, there was no dead man. 
My gun was gone from my hands, and my cap from my head. I put my hands to my head, for I thought I had lost my senses. I then groped about for the gun, which must have been four or five yards away from where I stood. I left my cap until the next morning and found it down by the garage door. I walked back into the house that night as cold as though I had been on a block of ice. I felt I dare not mention this to my wife. Could I tell Mr. Kelly when he came home? No, I dared not. He would probably tell me I was mad or that I had been drinking, and there was no room for such men as me in his house. So I set to work to discover what I could to trace this thing that now I knew only too well was a spirit. When Mr. Kelly came home, he happened to come into my bedroom one evening and asked me if I felt comfortable here and that I sleep well. That was only to be expected from such decent people as my wife and I knew them to be, and I knew only too well that one answer to such a question should have been in the ordinary case sufficiently satisfying, for he had confidence in us and was treating us more like two of his own family. But that same question was asked me again in the kitchen one evening by Mr. Kelly. It then dawned on me that he seemed very anxious to know, so I could not refrain from asking him point-blank in these words. Now, sir, why do you ask? Have you any inspiration that we are not happy and comfortable? The answer came, no, only that we want you to be comfortable. But the expression on his face told me more than any words he could have said, that there was something more behind this than I knew. So come what may, I was determined to speak, and in these words I said, Look here, sir, you are going to tell me that I am mad, or that I have been drinking, but this place is uncanny. I have seen very weird things lately. It was then that I got this reply. Oh, then you have seen it. But how thankful I felt when I found I had spoken to one who really knew. Fear left me. I was determined now to meet this spirit again, and to get it to speak, because I felt that if any harm could befall me, it would have happened that night. I had shot at it. It was one night in January, at the beginning of the new year, when I lay in my bed reading a book on photography, that I heard three distinct knocks. I looked at my clock. It was 12.25. I got out of bed, put on a few clothes, and crept very silently along the corridor, expecting to find a light shining through the bull's-eye glass in Mrs. Kelly's bedroom door, as I knew she often would read all night. But all was in pitch darkness. I crept down the narrow stairs and into the lounge, and looked out of the window onto the lawn, but not a thing was to be seen. I did not see a moon, although it was fairly clear night. It came to my mind then that the dog never barked. He must have heard. I crept back, but this time up the broad staircase, leading to Mr. Kelly's bedroom, determined to find out where those knocks came from, and half expecting to find some sort of clue. Yes, I was right, for there in the corner of the recess outside Mr. Kelly's room stood this now terrible ghostly spirit that i need have no fear was evident for it paid no attention to me it did not even look at me but stared as if through mr kelly's room leaning against the wall with the right arm extended and in a position as if to knock or push the door open i was satisfied now i could see it was producing its own light there was a long gash across the throat a handkerchief round the neck on it was blood which looked to me quite fresh there was a kind of skull cap on the head, and what happened to be a dirty green smock. But I had seen enough, I thought, of my camera, so I crept back to my bedroom, put a plate in the slide, and made my way silently back on to the corridor, 
only to be met by disappointment, for it had vanished. It was no use calling Mr. Kelly now. Besides, I knew he was sleeping sound. I would not mention this to Mr. Kelly in the morning, for I felt and knew what a fool I had been to have delayed the time when I could have taken quick action and obtained results satisfactory to all. I knew that this would not be the last chance, so I set to work on a scheme to be in readiness for the next appearance. It was some days after when Mr. Kelly approached me on the subject and asked me if I thought it was possible to get a photograph of it. I assured him that it was, so we arranged for Saturday night so that he could get a fairly good rest on the Sunday should it take us into the small hours of the morning, which it did, for we watched and waited and prepared a powerful electric light to make the exposure as short and sure as possible, but it seemed that it was not to be, for it never appeared, at least not to our vision. I knew that I was no more disappointed than Mr. Kelly, and he suggested taking a photograph of the corner in which it was always seen. The negative enclosed is the actual result of that particular exposure. Now, I cannot offer any explanation for these most peculiar results, but I must point out the plain facts, and that is that they are not thumb marks. I mention this because it came to my knowledge that this was the remark of a person unknown to me who saw the print. Mr. Kelly may have been ignorant of the remarks, but even if he was not, he is satisfied that they were wrong, because he had witnessed the whole process of development after the exposure, and again other negatives taken at the time showed nothing in that form at all. Any scientist into whose hands this negative should come will be able to see that there has been no faking. In the first place, the plates were brought by Mr. Kelly himself, one out of a dozen anti-Wellington the proper term, Wellington Anti-Screen 450H and D. Now, if a thumb or finger were to be pressed on the plate during development, there would possibly be a slight impression left on the emulsion, but no printing quality. If the thumb or finger were dipped in a strong fluid such as acid, it would seriously mark the negative and so obliterate the background. If fog were present, caused by a hole in the bellows of the camera, it would look quite flat on the background. So if the print from this negative is looked at, it will be noticed that there is a distinct atmosphere between that marking and the background, making it stand out away from the wall. Here I must leave it to those who are more able than myself to carry out further experiments. I should like to end this account by saying that unlike all the rest of the people in that house, I was in a position to get into all kinds of places in the grounds and in the house at such different times of the day and night that I had discovered perhaps more in those ten weeks than Mr. Kelly or his family had done in one year. What Mr. Kelly thinks of those ponies that would come scampering up the drive, sometimes in the evening and other times early morning before six o'clock, I do not know. But why was it that they did not run out of the gate and into the road? It was nearer and more direct from where they were, and a horse will mostly take the shortest course. They were frightened, and they showed it. Well. Let us come back to the old moat, cross the lawn, and sit in a little garden chair on the corner of the house under Mr. Kelly's window. Keep your eye on the moat between the rustic bridge and the big ash tree in the corner. You will then get the clue to it. No, it is not the big white owls flying round as they do. Those ponies have no fear of them. Only when those ponies are in that far corner field this happens. And then the time is so variable that it means possibly an all-night vigil. It was the voice of Mr. Kelly that shouted from his bedroom window to those horses who were already stampeded 
onto the lawn that morning before six o'clock. Yes, Mr. Kelly, I was up very, very early that morning, and it was not the first time, and after all, a nice cup of tea and a warm fire soon got the chill out of my body, and I felt as fit as ever. Now, unless the International Society for Psychical Research are prepared to carry out investigations on these lines, and over long periods they will never discover one half of the happenings at Ash Manor House. Signed, F.C. Miller, 4 Halliford Road, Sunbury on Thames, Middlesex. July 19, 1936. Mr. Miller's statements concludes this true ghost story. There may be a sequel, who knows, which will clear up the mystery of the sad and restless return, and in bringing peace to the wandering spirit, it may also bring peace to all those who live at Ash Manor.